you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 1? Luke's Gospel chapter 1. Andrea, my goodness, that was really, really good. Luke chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 26. Andrew, you did good too. I, I feel like I should say that you did good too. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. It says, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. From her. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, this morning many of us may be like Mary, we may be like Zechariah, and we may be perplexed and confused in the middle of your will. Father, we may not know that you have a great call in our lives or a great change that's about to take place in our lives and be uncertain and trembling at the thought of it. I pray, Father, that this morning for all of us who are trembling, we would look to Christ and say, let it be. I pray, Father, for those of us this morning who wonder how this story could possibly be relevant to their lives today in the 21st century, in the, in the global economy, that today, oh Father, you would break through the noise of this, of this age, that they might see the true Christ high and lifted up, and the relevance of his cross to their life right now. Father, I pray that you would be glorified in all that is done that you would say exactly what you have here to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So in the eighth or ninth grade, I had to learn the quadratic equation. All right, y'all getting nervous, aren't you? Some of y'all just, just had a PTSD trip out, okay? I saw it. I saw it. And it was really a good thing that I learned it in the 8th or ninth grade because I ended up using it a lot all the way through the rest of high school math, into calculus, into college, all, all the things. Like, it came up a lot. And so, Dana, please forgive me. I've, I've, I've thought about this. I know. I'm, please forgive me. But if I'm honest with y'all, I thought it would be more important to my everyday life than it is now. Like it came up so often and we talked about it so much and I had to work through so many different problems. Turns out pastors don't use the quadratic equation as often as you might think. And it brings into our minds that question that every parent has the answer to their child as their child is slaving away at synthetic division well into the night. How in the world is this going to matter in the real world? 
How in the world is this going to matter in my real life? Won't I just have a calculator? Won't I just have a computer? Can't I just ask Alexa? Right? And that's where I want to start this year in Advent. You see, most of us have heard the story of Jesus' birth to Mary since our mom was rocking us in a rocking chair before we could even understand the words that were coming out of her mouth. But my concern is, is that perhaps we have heard it so many times over so many years that it almost doesn't even seem impressive to us anymore. It almost doesn't even seem miraculous to us. In fact, perhaps it's even gotten lost in the backdrop of all the Disney movies we've watched and all the fairy tales that we've heard and all the, all the imaginary friends that we've had, that perhaps the story of the birth of Jesus has been backlogged in the archives of our memories to a place of insignificance. And you would ask, how does it actually matter in real life? I'm dealing with a real marriage. I'm dealing with a real job. I'm dealing with a real boss. I'm dealing with really rebellious children in the real world. How does the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago matter about that today? You see, I think that's a product of the Bible Belt culture that many of us have grown up in. Living here in the Bible Belt, I believe, is a great privilege. I don't say that in a negative sense, but there's real baggage that comes with it too, right? That for many of us, we've grown up in a tradition that focused the whole Christian faith on what will happen one day. That, in other words, as long as I get my eternity settled, as long as I I have placed my faith in Jesus, been baptized, and I know I'm going to go to heaven, it really doesn't matter what I do right now. Now, what happens one day matters. Eternity matters. It is of eternal consequence that you know right now that you are right with God through the blood of Christ. That matters. But I wonder if all the focus on what happens after we die has actually diminished the importance of what it means to know and walk with Christ today, right now, in the real world, with real problems. Perhaps that's why so many people don't think it's important that you are committed to the church. Perhaps that's why so many people don't feel like it's committed, it's important to be in a, a common, frequent devotional relationship with the living God. It's because we focus so much on one day. But the story of the Advent is the story of the real God who became a real man born into the real world to resolve real problems, to resolve real issues that you and I are still struggling with, that you and I are battling with every single day. So where I want to start this Advent season is I want us to see how the gospel is good news for real life. Gospel is good news for real life. First, I want you to see is that it is good news for marginal people. It is good news for marginal people. Luke is especially concerned throughout his gospel with the reality that the kingdom includes people that are on the periphery. These marginal people in life. And it's probably because Luke understood himself to be a marginal person. Luke was a Gentile author. Different than all the other gospel writers, Luke is a Gentile. So he is one of the people that God wasn't supposed to care about. He's one of the people that is supposed to be in the margins of society. He's one of the people that's like us. You know, we live in rural Alabama, don't we? Our accents are thick. We're the butt of everyone's joke. Many of us are only a generation or two away from having dirt floors in the house. I know my family's like that. And it can be easy for us to feel, how does God Could God possibly care about what happens to me? 
How could God possibly be at work in a place that is so forgotten, a place that is so joked about, a a place that is so often insulted and used as, as an epithet in this world? How could God care about us? Well, there's good news. We see the place in which Jesus is born, and we see the people to whom Jesus is born, and we can recognize that God is at work in marginal places with marginal people. In other words, the gospel is hope for the forgotten places. It says that Jesus, uh, that the angel Gabriel found Mary in the sixth month in Nazareth. In Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is like Rabbit Town or Chakalaka. You don't know it's there unless you're from there. You know what I mean? Like there's a couple of hundred people. The people in Nazareth, they spoke with a thicker accent than the academics in Jerusalem. Okay, they played 1A Ironman football going both ways, offense and defense in Nazareth. Okay, these were, these were honest, blue-collar, hard-working people. In fact, in John's gospel, the reports of what's happening in Jesus' ministry and the miraculous works gets out. And the saying becomes, apparently what was a common saying in the day, how could anything good come out of Nazareth? How could anything good come out of Nazareth? We know what a pit that place is. We know how backwards those people are. How could anything good come out of Nazareth? It's not just that, though. It's Mary herself. Mary is a hardly pubescent 12-year-old girl if she falls into the cultural norms of when she would be betrothed. Think about that. And, and she was not living in Jerusalem in a palace somewhere. She was not in an aristocratic family. She's in Nazareth. She's a peasant girl, about to be married, about to have her life. Tra- and you can imagine she's already got all the anxiety of a new marriage coming and the new relationship happening and the family starting and the responsibilities that are going to be bearing down on her. All of these things are already happening in Mary's life. And now an angel shows up right in the middle of all of her wedding plans to say, oh, by the way, you're going to give birth to the Son of God. There wasn't a a string of pearls around Mary's neck, you see. There was dirt under her fingernails. She was an obscure person in a forgotten place. And yet that is where God chose to do the single greatest act of, of his mercy and kindness and miraculous power in the history of the world. There's hope for that in us, for us, isn't there? There's not a person, there's not a place that is forgotten in the economy of God. There's not a person and there's not a place that is not significant in the economy of God. There is not an act of faithfulness. There is not a peasant girl in the far reaches, in the jungles of Africa, that is overlooked by the sovereign kindness of our God. In fact, in fact, God often chooses these obscure people in obscure places to manifest and do his very greatest work. Well, that's good news for us in Alabama. That's good news for us here on Highway 9 in the middle of two places nobody's ever heard of before. But it's disorienting too, isn't it? It's the opposite of the way that we would work. We would go, if we were starting a global movement, we would probably go to a global city like New York City or Tokyo, one of these places, right? It's disorienting when you see the upside-down nature of the kingdom, and yet this also is something that is at the forefront of Luke's mind throughout his gospel, throughout the book of Acts, how God is always working in his kingdom in the opposite way 
that we would expect him to work. And so it's confusing. It's perplexing. And that's what I want you to see too. Is that it's not just hope for forgotten places. It's help for confused people. There's a parallel account that's happening here between Mary and Zechariah. Zechariah is going to be the father of John the Baptist. He comes from the line of Aaron, right? And Gabriel has already talked with them. John the Baptist is on the way. The sixth month is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist. And Gabriel says the same thing to both of them. And they have the same reaction. That both Jesus and Zechariah hear the greeting. And in verse 29 it says, But she, in Zechariah 2, was greatly troubled. We're greatly troubled. That you have this breakthrough, this interruption in the silence of her ordinary life. And all of a sudden, she's like, what in the world is this? That this world greatly troubled, it means to be confused. It means to be perplexed. It can mean to be overwhelmed, confounded by what you're happen- what's happening to you. Now, I want you to think about that. Is Mary outside of the will of God when she's confused? Is she outside of the will of God when she's perplexed and overwhelmed? I think very often we associate confusion in our lives with meaning that we are outside of the will of God, outside of the grace of God, that somehow we must have a disobedience in our life if we're, being, if we're confused and confounded at what God is calling us to. But here is Mary and there is Zachariah and they're right in the center of where God would have them to be, doing exactly what God would have them to do. And yet the call of God comes to them and they are greatly troubled. They are overwhelmed. That very often... You're not confused because you're outside of God's will. You're confused because you're right in the center of it. That God's will is confusing to limited, finite, rational human beings. Because he operates in a way that is contradictory to the way that we operate. He operates in a way that is outside of our normal means of operation. But Gabriel, both to Zechariah and then to to Mary, says the exact same thing into the midst of their confusion. And perhaps if that's where you are this morning, if you're in the middle of God's will and you know that my life is not perfect, but it's wholly offered to the Lord and I have no idea, literally no idea what he wants me to do or how he wants this to come about, listen to what Gabriel says to her, to both she and to Zacharias. He says, do not be afraid. That means that she was afraid, right? Gabriel senses this. Do not be afraid because you have found favor with God. In other words, what Gabriel is saying is that this call has come to you because of God's grace. Mary had not earned this, it's important for us to recognize. She had not merited that she would be the mother of a living God. I mean, I don't think anyone is capable of meriting such. It had come to her by grace. But coming to her by grace, it had confounded and overwhelmed her. And yet he says, no, 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 no. You need to recognize what I said from the start, Mary. The Lord is with you. You have found favor with God. In other words, God's grace has called you. And now God's grace will enable you. God's grace will sustain you. That God will not call you to what his grace will not sustain you through. It's important for us to recognize that. That means that none of us are safe. None of us. That God's call, if it can come to Nazareth to a peasant girl and call her to give birth to the Son of God, then it can come to Red Road 55 and it can come to Liberty Lane and it can come to Heflin, Alabama and it can come to Golden Springs, Alabama and Mumford, Alabama. That God's call can come to any single one of us at any point by His grace. But if God's call comes to you to do a great work in His name and it will come, then you can be certain, you can be certain that His grace will see you through. You see, God, Jesus was born in a place 
like us, a real place. And Jesus was born to confused parents like us. None of us were born to parents that had it all figured out, and Jesus certainly wasn't either. And that means being born in a lowly place and being born to lowly people that Jesus understands us. He gets us, y'all. He understands small town problems. He understands everyday life. He understands imperfect parenting. He understands it all. And he can empathize with me and with you in the midst of our weakness. That's good news in the real world. That's good news in the real world. But it's not just that it's good news for marginal people. It's that it's good news for old promises. It's good news for old promises. So Gabriel had interrupted 400 years of silence from God to his people. Okay, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here comes Gabriel. But this is what they had been told was going to happen for a long time before that. Okay, you have to understand that here they are, and they are seeing all kinds of horrendous things that are taking place around them. And people keep saying, but the Messiah is going to come. But the Messiah is going to come. But one day, the son of David is going to come. The throne is going to come. And you can imagine that what happened over enough years, as enough centuries passed by, that the people began to roll their eyes. Why? What about the real problems that we're dealing with? That's how it feels to us too, isn't it? How many times over the course of your life have you heard a preacher stand up or a person or maybe it was your godly granny to say to you, Jesus is coming soon, Jesus is coming soon, but you look around and what you see is silence. What you see is what is an apparent destruction. It seems as though cancer is still spreading. It seems as though as depression is increasing. It seems as though morality is decaying. And you look around at your world and you think, you keep saying that, but where is he? My world is not getting better. My world is not resolved. And after enough centuries, over enough time, many of us have just gotten to a place where we just roll our eyes at it. That we have this promise but it doesn't seem to bring us very much hope. We just think it's the, it's the safety net of ignorant people who don't know any better. And so we're resolved to just figure out our problems on our own. Well, there was Mary and Joseph and all the people of Nazareth, Elizabeth and Zechariah, and they had felt the same way. They knew the same pressures. They had heard the same promises. And yet silence continued to pervade until, until the angel Gabriel comes, the archangel comes and splits their world right in half and says the silence is over he's coming and he's coming right here, right now into this world and that old promise, that old promise began to be realized in fact what we see here is that there are numerous, and and honestly we could take two hours and we could unpack that, so we're just going to surface level on two of them Two old promises here that are fulfilled in the, in the coming of Gabriel to Abraham or to uh, Mary. First, I want you to see that the snake loses. I love, I love Mary's reaction to Gabriel when she, he tells her that she's going to have a son. He says in verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then now skip down to verse 34 and see Mary's reaction. Mary said to the angel, how will this be? In other words, she says, I know I'm just a farm girl from Nazareth, Gabriel, but how in the world? <laughs> like, I, I don't get it. I've never been with a man. I've never, I've never uh, performed, been a part of anything that would lead to a natural conception. Like, how in the world is that going to come about? And he says that the 
shadow of the Almighty is going to come upon you, that the Lord himself is going to weave together a son in your womb, that the divine is going to be placed into a body that is there. But, 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 this is the way it had to be. If you'll remember back, if you were with us, two and a half, and a lot of you weren't, two and a half years ago, we started something called the big story, and where we were talking about the meta-narrative, the big picture of all the Bible, how it's one story, and where we said the very first promise was given, the very first presentation of the gospel is what we call the proto-evangelium. It's in Genesis 3.15, the prototype of the gospel, when after Adam and Eve have sinned, God comes to Eve, and he goes to the snake, and he says what? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. Now, the seed of who? Not of Adam. Not of the man. Have you ever thought about this before? Not of Adam. Not of the man. The seed of Eve. The seed of the woman. In other words, everybody that descends from Adam in the natural and normal way will inherit a corrupted nature as Adam has, cor- has given. But those who, the one who has come, has come to be miraculously born only to a woman, to be the seed of a woman. And being born the seed of the woman, she can be certain that he will crush the head of the snake. See, we look around and it looks like the snake is winning, doesn't it? Ukraine is being shelled by Russia. Our children are coming home talking about gender identity and gender confusion. Our society is more vulgar. Vulgar Vulgarity is widely accepted as being normal and appropriate in all kinds of settings and in all kinds of ways now. The people that you love, you're still burying. You're still having to attend funerals. You're still looking down the barrel of your own death one day. You're still tempted to cheat on your husband. You're still uh, infringed upon by a barrage of lust in your life. And it feels to us like the snake perhaps has won. But here is the promise in the first advent. Here is the promise in the coming of Christ that the snake really does lose. That the promise really is upheld. That the grave really has been slaughtered. That death really has been overthrown. That sin really has been conquered. Here by a real God, as a real man, in the real world, born to a real woman. The seed of the woman has come to crush the head of that snake. There's a second promise I want you to see. Not just that the snake loses, but that the kingdom lasts. So Jesus, if you've kept up with the story is a son to at least three different people in Matthew chapter or in Luke chapter 1 here. He is the son of Mary, right? We've seen that that you shall call his name Jesus. You will conceive in your womb. He's talking to Mary. So he is the son of Mary. So that's one. Then it says that you are the son of the most high. There's two, right? And then he will give to him the throne of his father David. There's three. Three different. He is the son of Mary and Joseph. He is the son of God himself. And he is the son of David. And he is the son of David because he is the son of Mary and Joseph. Both of whom are descendants of David. Both of whom come from the lineage of David. So he is, it is his natural birthright in the family of David. And he is the son of David because he is the son of God. God had said in Psalm chapter 2 that his son was going to take upon the throne of David and receive as an inheritance all of the nations of the earth and that he would establish a kingdom under whom, over whom he would reign 
forever, eternally. And what does he say here? That he will reign over Jacob's house forever. In other words, what he's promising here, what he's promising here is that the long-awaited son of David has come to overthrow all of the enemies of this world, that peace might be known. That peace might not be threatened. That peace might not be a maybe or an if this happens scenario. That peace might be an everlasting, eternal, always present reality in the lives of the people of God. Now, I want you to think about how this would have landed in Mary's day. In first century Palestine, they are occupied by the single greatest military in the history of the world, the Roman emperor. And here, as part of the Roman Empire, they see they are ruled over by a Roman governor. We see that with Pontius Pilate, right? They answer to Rome. They pay taxes to Rome. They're all the time being accused and and patronized for not bowing down to the Roman pantheon. And they look around and they think, what hope do we, as middling little people, have to overthrow the mightiest conquerors that the world has ever known? And in fact, even if, even if we were able to stage some kind of coup, even if we were able to have some kind of revolt that would enable us to politically overthrow them, who's the next one going to be? Because Rome is just the latest in a long line of occupiers. They've had Assyria, they've had Babylon, now they have Rome. Like, in other words, even if they overthrow Rome, their peace is not ensured. Even if they overthrow Rome, their stability is not ensured. Unless the promise is true. Unless the promise is true, unless there is one who is going to sit upon the throne of David who is actually God himself, unless the promise is true and the God who crushed the walls of Jericho and divided the Red Sea and brought them into the promised land and allowed them to take residence, unless the God who was the pillar of fire by night and cloud by day that guided them across, unless he comes and takes residence right in their midst on the throne itself, what hope do they have? In other words, unless the true, it is true what Isaiah had written 600 years earlier, For to us a child is born, for us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Or the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Will do this. And here is Mary hearing from the angel of Gabriel saying it isn't just a promise anymore. It is not just that the Lord will do this. It's that the Lord is doing this now. That the promise is true. Now maybe you're wondering what in the world does that have to do with me today. And I, when I go back home on my way get some Jack's chicken and deal with the kids in the drive-thru. Like, like how does that help me? You see, we live in an age when it feels like the snake is still winning. And we live in an age in which it feels like, quite frankly, that the kingdom is in occupation. There are fewer people who believe in God now in the Western world than in the history of the Western world. 
There is less concern with religious matters now than there has ever been in the history of the world. I don't mean that God is silent, but I mean as a realistic person that we can look around at our society and we can see that we are increasingly naturalistic, we are increasingly secular. Your children are facing persecution and issues that many of us, even a couple of decades ago, could not have even predicted with our wildest imaginations. And it may feel as though that the snake is winning and that the kingdom is occupied. God interrupted the silence once. And God is going to interrupt the silence a second time. That Jesus is going to come back. And I know so many of us over so many decades have waited centuries to see these prophecies come fulfilled. Have waited centuries to see these promises become reality. Just as Mary had. Just as Zechariah had. Just as those first century Christians or first century Jews had. But as what we can see is because he fulfilled those old promises then. He will certainly fulfill those old promises now. And what that means is that our suffering is limited There is a ceiling. There is a cap on your suffering. You may not live to see the coming of Christ, but you will experience the resurrection when the archangel one more time splits the sky and divides history and comes and hope for his people. And at that point, the the, the defeat for the snake will be final. And the peace of the kingdom will be eternal. Y'all, it's just a little bit longer. It's just a little bit longer. Don't roll your eyes. It's just a little bit longer. You only have to make it a little bit longer. We can endure because we have one another and we have the Spirit of God. It's just a little bit longer. It's good news for old promises. And it's good news for impossible problems. It's good news for impossible problems. You you can imagine... You can imagine this is a lot for Mary to take in. She's a hardly pubescent 12-year-old girl who's just been told as a virgin she's going to bear, give birth to the divine, okay? It's a lot to take in. And so Gabriel recognizes this, and part of the message that he has from God is a message of assurance because she needs some insurance. You can imagine how insecure she must feel. Just think of how insecure we feel. God tells us to do something, and we're almost certain that he's told us to do it. And then time goes on, and we think, eh, did I misunderstand? Eh, I, did I eat bad Thai food? Eh, I, I, really, that really doesn't, I really don't know how to do that. Yeah, that's, that's really outside of what I'm able to do, what I'm comfortable to do, what I'm prepared to do, what I'm equipped to do. In other words, our life, even at its best, in the midst of Jesus' kingdom, is filled with insecurity, isn't it? That what we need, if we're going to have real world hope and with real world problems, is we need real world assurance. And Gabriel sees that need in Mary's life. And so he comes to her and he makes an announcement to her that must have just taken her aback. He comes and he says, your old cousin, you know, that really, really old one. I love that he emphasizes that. You know that cousin of yours that is infamously barren? She can't have kids? Why don't you give her a ring? She's six months pregnant. She's six months pregnant. Because I did that. Because the forerunner has come. The one who is like Elijah, John the Baptist. He has come. So go ahead, call Elizabeth. And his point is clear enough that he wants Mary to see what God, that God has come through. That God has come through. In other words, everybody would have interpreted Elizabeth's barrenness in her old age as a curse from God. And what he wants Mary to see is that God is at work in the here and in the now. In the present world, reversing the curse. See, Mary, like us, 
would have been rocked in a rocking chair by her mom too. And she would have been told stories, just like we were told the story of Jesus, she would have been told the story of Sarah, who God had made a promise that, she, that through her she was going to have a son, and that son was going to be a blessing to all nations, that through her son Isaac, the promise was going to be transmitted, and yet she was old and she was barren, and it seemed as though God had failed her until she was pregnant. And she had heard the story of Hannah. Hannah, the old barren lady who, who makes a, a promise to the Lord that if you will just give me a son, if you will just give me a son, I will take that son and I will commit him to you and he will be yours and I will dedicate him to, to your service all the days of his life. And then she gives birth to Samuel, the great prophet. But what Gabriel wants Mary to recognize is that he wasn't just the God back then. He wasn't just working back then. He wasn't just doing miraculous works back then. It wasn't just good news back then. God is at work right now. Elizabeth is pregnant today. She is like, like Sarah. She is like Hannah, except she is somebody you know. She is in your living room, man. God was at work then, but God is at work now. And since God has come through, then you can be certain that God will come through. This is an overwhelming call, no doubt. This is a big deal, no doubt. But God has come through. He's not just way back there somewhere. He's at work right now. He's at work in the real world today. And you can know he has come through and he will come through. I love the way that it says. So he gives this second dimension in verse 37, a second assurance to her. He says, for nothing will be impossible with God. And I love that here is a future tense. You see that? In other words, he doesn't just say, that nothing is impossible with God. He says nothing will be impossible with God. That is, that the world will never invent a problem big enough that God won't be able to overcome it. That you will never face a scenario as uncertain as your future is, that even in the uncertainty and insecurity of that future, you will never face a problem that God is unable to overcome. That God, in other words, is telling Mary that her life with him is future-proof. Yeah, this is a big call on her life. And this is overwhelming, and this is scary, and this is confusing, and this is, this is confounding and terrifying, and, and all those adjectives that we can use. It's, it's all of those things and more. But God will come through for you. You see, that's what we need, isn't it? As insecure people living in an insecure world with an uncertain future, what we need to know is that our future with God is certain. What we need to know is that wherever he calls us to, that we can be certain that he is going to be there on the other side for us. And here it is, here it is. It is not just that it was Sarah, and it's not just that it was Hannah, and it's not just that it was Elizabeth. And it's important for us to see that it's not just that it was Mary. It's us today. God is with us now in the world that we face, in the problems that we know, in the marriages that we have, in the parenting that we do, in the, in the sins that are we're always fighting against. God is at work with you right now. That as you face trying to live as a faithful example in the midst of suffering or cancer, God is with you and nothing will be impossible for him. As God calls you to start a new ministry or, or to go to the nations, then you don't know how to do that. You, you don't know the language. You don't know how all the things are going to work. Nothing will be impossible for God. 
right now, you're trying to, to put down a besetting sin, one of those sins that has just always been a part of your life, and you know it is creating pain and consequences in your relationships with other people. It's creating distance between you and the Lord. And you think, how in the world could I possibly overcome this? Offer it to the Lord. Nothing will be impossible with Him. Now, that's good news today, isn't it? That's good news today in the real world. And the certainty, the assurance that we have that it's not just words on a page, the assurance that we have that it's not just some fairy tale like all the Disney stories that we heard, is that Jesus really was born into this world after Gabriel said that he would be. And Jesus was born in this world, and Jesus really did live in this world, and he did walk among this world, and he really never did sin. Jesus really did fulfill hundreds of prophecies from the Old Testament in a way that no one could do intentionally. Jesus really was crucified on a cross. History attests to this, and Jesus really was raised from the dead. More than 500 people saw him after his resurrection. It's an assurance. It's an assurance. He's not just God back then. He's God today. And he's not just God today. He's God tomorrow. And finally, I want you to see that this is good news for surrendered plans. Again, Luke's concern, Luke's concern in his mind throughout the book of, of, of Luke and throughout his book also Acts, he wants us to see that the kingdom is upside down, that the first are last, that the lowly are exalted, that, that those who pursue greatness won't find it, those who pursue humility will find it, that, that freedom comes through slavery, that throughout his gospel and throughout the book of, of, of Acts, he's always showing us the upside-down nature of the kingdom. And Mary's life, my goodness, it has certainly been thrown upside-down, hasn't it? Mary says two things in this account. Two things, only two things. We, we saw the first thing that she said. What did she say? How in the world? How in the world could this possibly be? How in the world? And so she's listening and she's processing and she's overwhelmed. And y'all, she's 12 years old. She doesn't have Google to ask. She doesn't have anybody that she can go and can relate to this problem that she's dealing with or these issues or to talk it out. She's just in here wrestling, trying to decide, like, what does this mean for me? What does this look like for me? So she says, how in the world? And the second thing that she says is, let it be. Let it be. How in the world? Let it be. You're, in other words, not my will for my life, but your will for my life. And Luke is showing us that this is what life in the kingdom of God looks like. This is what faith in the kingdom of God looks like. For Mary, this comes at a significant cost. You understand? That for her, that what's hanging in the balance is whether or not she's going to carry a scarlet letter for the rest of her life. Hanging in the balance is the shame that it's going to bring upon her family, likely a divorce from her husband. The, the real proposition that she'll never marry, have to be raised in her father's house as long as he lives, and ultimately live totally destitute and dependent upon the charity of a society that looks down their noses at her. That she has at 12 to make the decision of what the rest of her life is going to look like. She has to, at 12, decide right now, here, I'm going to lay down what I thought my marriage would look like. I'm going to have to lay down what I thought being a mom was going to look like. I'm going to lay down what I thought the future was going to look like. I'm going to lay it all down, and I'm just going to say, I don't understand. I don't know how this is going to be possible. I don't know how this works out, but Lord, let it be. See, faith, faith is the bridge between how in the world and let it be. Faith. What she says is so beautiful. She says, I am the servant of the Lord. The actual word here is bondservant. It's not included because it's not a word that we're very familiar with. But to be a bondservant, 
is to be a voluntary slave. It's to sell yourself into slavery because what you imagine is that your life as this person's slave is better than if you were to live independently in your own freedom. And so I would rather be your slave than free on my own. You hear the faith in those words? Mary looks to Gabriel and she says, I sell myself into the slavery of the Lord. I don't know what the future holds for me. I don't know what kind of pain is going to be on the other side. I don't know what kind of difficulties are going to be on the other side. I don't know how all of this works out. The, the, the quadratic equation in my mind isn't balancing out. I don't know how this works. But what I know, what I know is that I would rather be a slave of the Lord, that I know that my life will be better as a slave of the Lord than if I take control and live my life by my own freedom. So let it be. This morning, I wonder, in your life, what it is that God's calling you to that you say, how in the world? This morning, will you respond in a way that is emulative of, that emulates uh, Mary by saying, let it be? In other words, will you take the backward step to freedom through the pathway of slavery? Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.